0: I remember back in the day, I was in a parish setting for a couple months, actually, so I'd been in the community for a while. When someone came out to me and said, you know, Father, do you want to see our mission statement? So before you arrived, we had a mission statement articulating the values of the parish. And to be honest, I said to her, um, not really, right? because I already knew. I already knew what the values of the parish were based on how they were living, Right. the whole point is that our, our values as a community they're not revealed by what we say they're not revealed by a particular mission statement they're revealed by what we do you know the choices that we make in this life and you know father john ricardo he makes the same point in a slightly different sort of way right so basically what he says is that everyone has a philosophy and it might not hang together it might not be clearly articulated but it doesn't matter because how you live your life the choices you make again kind of demonstrate your philosophy and so, for example, your philosophy might be, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins, right? Or basically, life is all about accumulating pleasures. And so, given all that, the imitation, if you will, extended to each one of us is to ask ourselves the question: Like, do my values, as articulated out loud, actually match what I do? Do they actually match the choices that I make? the The way in which I live my life. the lord himself touches on the same point in this really famous parable called the parable of the rich fool which you find in the gospel of luke chapter 12. and so basically in the context of the story there's this guy the rich fool who accumulates a whole bunch of grain and he has so much grain that he has to build multiple barns to store this grain and in the aftermath of having accumulated all this wealth he tells himself well look i'm going to spend the rest of my days resting and drinking and eating and otherwise being merry in response to which the Lord rebukes him harshly. And so the Lord says to him, look, today your life is being demanded of you, and the things that you've gathered, uh, whose will they be when you basically die? Right? And so he concludes by saying, so will be for those who are rich in the eyes of the world, but are not rich when it comes to things which matter in the eyes of heaven. And of course, the takeaway message is that life is not about accumulating pleasures, life is not about accumulating material things, but instead life is about becoming rich when it comes to things which matter in the eyes of our Father in heaven. Which in turn of course begs the question what does it mean to be rich in the eyes of our father in heaven well for guidance perhaps we might turn back to the gospel and so think for example the gospel of luke chapter 10. the lord says you must love the lord your god above all things and then love your neighbor as yourself and on top of that think about the gospel of matthew chapter 25 right the parable of the sheep and the goats which concludes with that really famous line whatever you do to the least of my brothers and sisters you have also done it unto me right And of course, what this means, practically speaking, is that regardless of who we are, regardless of our particular circumstances in this life, every single moment we're called to recognize the primacy of the duty to love and to actually do the most loving thing in that particular moment. And you see, the thing I want you to notice here is that once you realize and understand how far encompassing is the duty to love, Perhaps you might begin to understand as well that this duty encompasses far more than simply being nice or polite, and includes far more than simply attending parish events or serving at the soup kitchen, because it demands and encompasses your entire life. And so given all that, I thought it might be kind of helpful to spend some time now talking about less obvious ways in which we're called to love, as part of our overall duty to love God above all things, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so the first thing that comes to mind is this duty to sanctify our work, sanctify our work and when i say that i don't simply mean offering up our work even though that's certainly part of it but on top of that and kind of more to the point to recognize the intrinsic value and dignity of our work done in ordinary circumstances and so it's an important starting point think about the catechism of the catholic church so what we hear basically in the context of the catechism is that everything the lord did while he walked the face of the earth was actually for our salvation and, and certainly this included his suffering and death on the cross, but it also included the so-called hidden life, the 30 years of doing simple and ordinary stuff in the simple and ordinary town of Nazareth. In this particular detail when it comes to salvation history, it actually has really important implications when it comes to our particular understanding of ordinary work. And so basically the idea, again, is that your ordinary work, when done carefully and well, has great dignity and it has infinite value. Not simply in the temporal sense, in the sense of building up modern-day society, but also in the supernatural sense. And so if you tend to the few things the Lord wants you to do carefully and well, and you do it for His glory, this can actually build up the kingdom of God and help to bring about the salvation of the world. Now, practically speaking, this doesn't necessarily mean that you're thinking about God all the time when you're doing your work, right? Because sometimes you've got to focus on the thing that you're doing. And so maybe instead you offer up your day by way of a morning offering. Or perhaps you say a quick prayer before you do a particular task at work. But the main thing, again, is the focus on the few things the Lord wants me to do carefully and well, and perhaps more to the point, to do it for His glory as opposed to some sort of competing motivation. And so the example that comes to mind back in the day when I was still in the seminary, starting to be a priest, we had the summers off, right? And because I owed so much money with regards to my student loans, instead of doing some variation of Starbucks ministry, I decided to go back to my old job of working as a lawyer. And going into that first summer, I remember kind of wondering, I wonder what kind of lawyer I'll actually be. Like, would I be a better lawyer, a worse lawyer, or the same lawyer? And what I discovered, to my surprise, actually, was that I was actually a much better lawyer working in those summers when I knew I was going back to the seminary to study to be a priest. And I think the reason why, in retrospect, was because when I was working as a lawyer before I entered the seminary, I was motivated primarily by issues of ego, pride, and fear. Whereas in contrast, when I was working as a lawyer during those summers, I was motivated primarily by the glory of God. And so funny that, you know, when I worked for the glory of God, my work was better. It worked out better for me, and it certainly worked out better for the firm. And so, yeah, I was a better lawyer doing things for the glory of God. But that brings us to the second thing I want to talk about. And so, again, another kind of less obvious way to kind of love God above all things is to never give in to fear, to never give in to fear, whether we're talking about anxiety, despair, or whatever the case may be. Now, just as a matter of background, we've got to remember that our feelings have no moral content. They're neither good nor bad. They simply describe how we feel. At the same time, we've got to remember that we always have a choice. So even though I might be feeling something very intensely, even though I might be kind of weighing on my heart, I still have a choice. I can choose to give in to my feelings. I can choose to give in to the thoughts associated with those feelings, or I can choose to firmly reject those feelings and those thoughts. And so the example that comes to mind, I remember back in the day, I was struggling through this really difficult season in the spiritual life where I was just plagued with negative thoughts. And it was really difficult because I would always tell myself, even though I could recognize the constituent elements of a temptation, I would always justify my entertainment of those thoughts by saying that these thoughts have a certain grain of truth, right? And so because they were kind of true, somewhat true, I didn't feel comfortable rejecting these particular thoughts. But the turning point for me was when I talked to an older priest friend of mine who basically said to me this, I realize that the reason why you find it difficult to reject this pattern of negative thoughts is because, again, you perceive this grain of truth kind of playing out in the back of your head. But that said, i got to tell you that this idea of giving in to anxiety and fear and despair, this has nothing to do with love of God. This has nothing to do with love of God, right? And you got to go back to you know, 1 John chapter 4, right? Perfect love casts out fear, right? And the takeaway message, of course, was that if you give yourself completely over to God's particular purposes for your life, And everything that implies, right, the primacy of love, the importance of love, you will have no room for anxiety, fear, and despair, because again, perfect love casts out fear. Okay, but that brings us to the third and final thing I want to talk about today, and for my money, this is perhaps the least obvious way in which we're called to love God above all things. And basically, the idea here is this. You were called to discover the things that you love to do, and then actually do it. And so again, you are called and commanded even to discover the things you love to do and to actually do it. And so to illustrate the point, many times when I'm hearing confessions, oftentimes when it comes to the giving advice part, I'll often counsel people to discover the things that they love to do and to actually do it, right? So to pencil into their routine or their schedule, not just rest time, but play time, right? Again, discovering the things that I like to do and love and to actually do these things that I like and love. Okay, now I realize that a lot of us obviously aren't used to hearing that type of advice, especially in the context of the confession, right? So even right now, when you hear this type of advice given in the abstract, maybe there's a part of you which kind of rebels against that. Now, if that's the case, if that's your interior response to this type of counsel, perhaps I'm suggest that that kind of goes in a certain sense to your working image of God. And so the question is basically this, like, what's my, again, working image of God? Do I see God as being the one who hates the things that I like, who hates the things that I love? Do I see him being simply interested in me praying, working, and suffering? Or perhaps do I realize that even though there's obviously a place for self-denial and sacrifice, ultimately these things are meant to conduce to the fullness of life, to a true sharing in God's blessed life, and everything that entails. Peace, joy, freedom, happiness, whatever the case may be. And of course, the whole point is that if I recognize that God actually wants me to be happy, well, then obviously it's really important that I discover the things that I love to do and actually do them, realizing that the things which I like to do are kind of, in a certain sense, unique and specific to me. And so the example that comes to mind, I remember hearing a story told by Jake Kim where he basically says that his wife, Heather Kim, once came out to him and said to him, uh, basically, like, look, I, I know you love golf and um, you should probably golf more often. Now, right away, when you hear that type of advice, I mean, to the untrained ear, it might sound kind of strange because what are we used to? Like, we're used to conversations between long-time spouses going something like this. Like, you know, you need to help out more. So, you know, spend less time playing and resting and just help me out, help me out with the kids or whatever the case may be, right? But you got to understand what Heather was kind of saying to her husband in this situation, right? So she wasn't saying to him, like, look, shirk your duties and play golf. Nor was she saying, like, you need to work in your golf game. Instead, what she was saying was like, look, I recognize that this is something which you enjoy. This is something you love. This is something which gives you life. And it's really important for you to do the things which give you life, right? Because when you do that, you become more alive. And that's better for you. That's better for me. That's better for us. That's better for our family. That's better for the world. And so here is Heather Kim basically inviting her husband to do the thing which gives him life because she realizes that God is actually calling him to do this as part of the process of becoming the person that God's calling him to be. And of course the takeaway message is that so it goes to each one of us and so again even though it sounds kind of strange it's really important for you to discover the things that you love and to actually do it right because god wants you to be fully alive fully yourself and a big part of that is not just work and self-denial it's also rest it's also play okay now i realize that when you hear all these things kind of put together it might sound kind of strange to the point of being a little bit too easy and so maybe there's a part of you kind of wondering right now like can i trust this can i build my life around this advice which seems too good to be true well if that's your hesitation or you find a particular variation of that hesitation sort of arising in your heart now perhaps i might refer you to the gospel and in particular to the gospel of matthew chapter 13 the parable of the sower and so without going into a whole lot of detail the whole point of that particular parable is basically to say this if you focus on the few things the lord wants you to do carefully and well if you don't allow your heart to be overwhelmed by feelings of anxiety or despair. And on top of that, if you don't allow yourself to be ruled by needs and expectations, but instead allow your life to have a certain rhythm and cadence befitting of that of the Creator God, well then don't be surprised that over time your life will bear an abundance of fruits in accordance with the parable of the sower and in accordance with God's providential designs. And may God bless you all.